Hi guys, welcome to the Contour Education Podcast. So my name is Engid and this is Amitov and we are the owners and founders of Contour Education. So just a quick um, brief introductions. We specialize in VCE tutoring, specifically small group tutoring for STEM subjects and we help year 11 and 12 students prepare for SACS and also the final exams. So about this podcast though, so what's this about? So what we decided to do is we wanted to create a podcast where we can talk to um, each other and also you and other guests we'll bring on about our VCE and the lessons we've learned from our experiences, other students, tutors, or just others in general. So we're going to bring on high achievers, hopefully high school ducks and other people that have scored very high, premiers award winners, 50 roars, and we're going to talk to them about what worked for them and what didn't. We're also going to talk about some of our experiences, example, what worked for us during VC, how did we do a lot of extracurricular, how did we manage our time, and how do we manage our time currently with Contour and, you know, what we're up to on our day-to-day basis. Um, but today, though, our focus is going to be on the exams, because we know the exams are coming up, so we're specifically going to talk about practice exams, and then we'll get a little bit more in-depth as, the, you know, a few of our episodes go along. But we're going to start off with... 10 common mistakes students make when they do practice exams. So we've highlighted 10 of them in no particular order. We're going to talk about them. But just before we get started, I just want to make it very clear. This advice is general. It may not work for everyone, whereas it might work you know, wonders for a lot of people. And the reason why is because a lot of it is from personal recollection, our own research, or just what we found on the internet or what worked for other people. And we've kind of compiled all of them in one place. Some of you might only take eight out of the 10 from our tips. So you might take two out of the 10 or none of them. So it's just really important you do your own due diligence, see what works for you and test and trial. Because at the end of the day, it is a journey of, you know, personal development. So have a listen, see what you think, and feel free to reach out to us if you have any other ideas as well for our podcast. So just getting started, the first tip we have is leaving the exam to the last minute. So this is an obvious one. If you're going to start preparing for the exam, then obviously leaving the exams to the last minute is not a very good way of doing that. And this kind of relates to the idea of active recall as well compared to passive recall. There's a few reasons why people might leave the exams to the last minute. We know some of them are going to be procrastination laziness, losing motivation, which is fair enough. There's three ways to deal with it, which we'll get into in another episode. But some other reasons might be a lot of students are revising notes, rewriting notes, just reading the textbook all over again. The main thing is with exams, you have to really start them early. Uh, Early doesn't mean like half a year early. I just mean at least a few months early. So at least you can get yourself familiar. It also gives you more direction. And it's also part of active recalling. Active recalling as in applying your knowledge And then it really tests whether you know what you're learning or not. But compared to writing notes down where you're just blindly copying exams, starting them early can make a really big difference to your score, confidence, and also your study routine going into the exam period. And it can give you a huge advantage because I promise you, even I think we're seven weeks to the exam right now, a lot of students haven't even touched exams. But I I can tell you the top guns in VC are, you know, they've done dozens already. We'll come back to the idea and how many exams to do as well. So don't get misled on the idea more the better. But yeah, there's a few ways to deal with it. Example is schedule. So maybe Amitav, you might want to talk about what a schedule might entail. Yeah, so having a schedule is one really good way, I feel like, to um, to just, you know, structure your exam. So you might have, um, it might be as simple as, okay, let me try and do two exams, say, for the next three weeks, for every week. So you might start with example, I don't know, really old VCA exams, those are a really good resource, or even like recent company exams from, you know, some other companies. Um, and th- th- these can just be a really good example, a really good starting point as well of having a good schedule because um, really the just doing practice exams is, is kind of the best way to, best training you can get other than doing the actual exam itself. It's really the second best thing you can do um, in order to prepare. 
because it's the closest thing you can get to that experience of writing an actual VCA exam. Um, so it's it's like the earlier the better, especially once you've covered um, most of the content, so you can actually like have a good attempt at an exam. Um, having a schedule can really be a great way to start. So just um, saying, okay, I will, I will do three exams, four exams, two exams in the next week, and then go over them, mark them, and kind of go on from there. Um, yeah, like that. That's I think a really important thing. Um, and yeah, the, the second uh, that kind of brings us on to the second most common mistake um, that student we see students make um, in terms of practice exams is grouping exams without marking or checking after each exam. So a lot of students we see might do four or five exams in like a group um, and then mark them at the very end of that group of just doing exams. And the issue with that is you don't actually learn anything in between exams, right? And that's the that's a really bad thing because then you've just wasted. Um, those other four exams in that group of five, if if you don't actually learn from the first and the second and the third, from all the mistakes you're going to make in those um, exams. So it's really, ideally, you just want to be doing one exam and then mark it, check it, go over it, um, review your, your mistake um, and really spend time on it. I think I personally remember I probably spent um, almost as long marking an exam and kind of going over it as I spent actually doing one. Um, and I think that can be a really great um way to kind of make sure you're actually learning from each and every single exam um, and not just grouping them and doing them in one go because it's not about the number of exams and we'll cover that I think a bit more as well but it's not just about like doing 10 exams doing 20 exams and just getting them over with it's really important um, learning I think from each each exam yeah I think I'm mean, really realized I remember talking to Eric and a few of the other tutors it's a really common theme on the idea of spending as much time on the exam as you did as in marking it compared to actually doing it because mm. um the way i like to kind of think about it is um each exam there's two ways to kind of think about it. one is you want to have like some percentage improvement just from doing the exam so maybe changes obviously it's not a linear thing but let's say you know you might gain one percent improvement and the sense your mark in your next sac or next exam sorry will increase by one percent um, but the main improvement i find for the actual exam is not doing the exam but the learning from the exam, because at the end of the day, right, the your exam mark doesn't depend necessarily on how much you got right. Yes, of course it does, but um, it's more dependent on how much you get wrong, right? So instead of focusing on the marks you're getting, you should be focusing on minimizing the marks you're losing. Um, and that's actually where the improvement is, because minimizing the marks you lose can increase your score by a huge amount. So even doing a little bit of, like, say, error analysis, which we'll get into, might increase your exam score by 2% rather than 1%. So it's like a combination, 1% from doing the exam and 2% from, say, doing the errors. Once again, these are just fake numbers. It could be more or less for different people. It might not be linear for each exam. It might slowly plateau, plateau for the more exams you do, which we'll get into. Um, but that means if you're doing five exams, right, um, in a row, that means you're improving 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%. You only improve 5%, which is pretty good. But if you do 1%, then 2%, like as in you mark an exam right after, you got 3% from that one exam. Yes, it might have taken a little bit longer to do one exam compared to, you know, say two or three without doing the marking bit. But this begins to compound because then you do the next exam, you do 1%, then 2%, then 1%, then 2%. And by you know it, you've improved by almost twofold doing the same five exams. Yes, it's going to take double the effort, but I think it's well worth it, especially you'll realize a lot of the top students, they take it very seriously. They're more focused on not the, the percentage they're getting, but more so how much they can, they're losing. And they're trying to minimize as much as possible. 
So that kind of leads us to the next idea is how do you actually keep track of errors? Well, this is basically a big thing a lot of students do is a big mistake, sorry, is this is our third one is not tracking errors in logbooks or journals. So this doesn't have to be a very fancy process. Most of the students that do have logbooks and journals have really basic stuff. It's nothing complicated. Um, but most students don't actually log their errors, which is actually very, very dangerous. And the reason why is because if you kind of couple this with the idea of like starting exams early, it's only work, starting exams early only works if you actually learn from them, right? There's no point starting exams two months early, then you get to exam period, then you forget everything. That's, you know, it's useless, waste of your time. Um, so if you're not tracking your errors you're making, or even the good things you're doing, maybe you want to track stuff you do know, or but mainly it's related to errors. If you're not tracking them, in a journal or a logbook, then you're prone to making the same errors later down the track. And I see a lot of students doing this, especially for a lot of my physics students. I see the same mistakes popping up like a month after. And it's a little bit frustrating, not just as a tutor, but also as a student to repeat a mistake that you've kind of looked at before. And the reason why is a lot of students aren't tracking it or taking it seriously enough. So all it has to be is just you just have like a book, maybe an Excel sheet, or you might just have a physical book. We had physical books when we did it, um, me and Amitav, and we just noted down what we got wrong, maybe the exam, the question, maybe a picture of it, or we cut it out. Um, and then you might annotate it with red pen. I used to annotate my questions with red pen, like what did I get wrong? What could I improve? And I always wrote things like personal comments, like this is dumb. Um, I can do improve this by... You know, reading the question again, drawing a diagram for these type of questions, I need to do that. And when you put all this time into just one little error, right, you'll be surprised. Your your brain kind of saves it in its brain. It's basically, yeah, it just saves it. Rather than spending five seconds on it, if you spend five minutes, it's more likely to stick. And then when it comes to the real exam, if something similar pops up, there's, your brain's like, hold on, we've seen this before. We can't make the same mistakes again. And I see this all the time, especially for transformer questions, for example. Students keep forget the DC voltage, DC voltage idea that DC voltage gives you constant flux and, you know, therefore no EMF. Some students see that once. They see it multiple in the past exams. I had a student, very bright guy. He's seen it before in past exams. You've talked about it, but clearly he didn't internalize that idea. And he made the same mistake in the real exam and he lost the mark on it. And like the one just last year in 2020. Um, so I think that's one way of doing it. Amita, what did you do for your error logbook? Yeah, I remember I used to have this tiny, like, floppy, um, like, booklet sort of thing I used to um, use for my physics, um, especially, and also maths, actually, physics and maths, um, like, errors. I would just, at the start, when I started doing practice exams, um, I, I'd just start writing every single type of error I made. I would write down just two things, like, keeping it really simple, I would just write down... Um, what did I get wrong? And then how can I fix it? So example, if I misread a question, I would write down like I, what I got wrong was just not reading the question enough times. Um, and the, how can I fix it? I actually need to read every question two times, three times, four times before I actually start attempting it. I mean, I think that that um, by the end of my kind of exam doing by the end before like the night before the final exam, I had, I'd kind of distilled it down to a few just a few mistakes that I still continue was continuing to make and those were the most common ones and then that gave me a really good revision tool um like right before because this was like as long as I memorized or just tried to remember these mistakes that I was likely to make then I, I was more likely to kind of recall them during while doing the actual exam I would my brain would as Engad mentioned just like recall that it's like oh hey this I, I'm, I'm likely to make this mistake and so I'll underline that in the exam or I'll highlight it and then I'll try to not make that mistake obviously in the actual exam so I think yeah the logbook um, or journal thing is really really useful um, 
and it's something a lot more people should do especially for science and math subjects where it's it's usually the very similar types of errors and you can really um, like technically fix them um, and that kind of leads on to um, the other big mistake that we see a lot of students make is um, calling every mistake kind of a, just a silly mistake like you couldn't have um, done anything to avoid it and I think we've realized that's usually not the case and like we we've obviously at some point probably made the same mistake of just um, kind of writing it off to a silly mistake and not not having to think about it too much anymore um, but I think most mistakes can actually be broken down into um, a few like actually fixable things for example um, not reading questions enough times like that's a really simple thing that you can easily fix like if you're not reading a question for example three times um, at least three times then you're not you probably shouldn't start writing because that's where you're likely to miss a detail which isn't the same I would argue as making a silly mistake because it's something you can actually fix right you can read questions multiple times before starting to attempt them and that way you're not making um, those repetitive mistakes where the source is actually not reading something enough times instead of just something silly that you can't fix because I think calling it a silly mistake gives you an excuse to not fix it but um, if you actually get try to get down to the reason um, why then yeah you can definitely work on a lot of mistakes which otherwise would end up ju you just keep making them again and again because you because um, you just wrote them off to a silly mistake yeah I think uh, with that I think really like what I'm thought raised the idea that like a silly mistake kind of makes you think it's not fixable i think that i used to do that quite a lot as well a lot of people it's really normal so if you are doing this it's like it's usually the case and it only comes from like self-realization like hold up you know i'm just kind of misleading myself here i think it was more so probably in uh year 12 in year 11 it wasn't too bad isn't because we did physics in year 11 i think year 12 when we did method mm -hmm. special i began to realize like these weren't silly mistakes and especially for special and things like that i began to realize a lot of it was kind of boiling down to small things like calculation errors a lot of kids always say oh i forgot the minus i forgot the positive you know in the calculation that's true those could be silly mistakes but i don't see them as silly mistakes because there's going to be students that don't make those and that means there's a there's a way to prevent something like that we're not designed to just make silly negative miss negatives and positives and that can usually come down to just like not being attentive when doing the question people not double checking people rushing people thinking faster they, than they can write stuff like that like that's not silly in my opinion because it's easily preventable and it only comes from it's really important to remember it only comes from understanding it is not a silly mistake because if you keep labeling everything as a silly mistake like let me tell you said it's obviously you're not going to realize then you're never going to fix it and it will keep happening over and over and over again some other common ones for like physics especially is calculation errors another one very common silly mistake people people like to label a silly mistake is oh i got it wrong in the calculator then the question is why don't you do it again in the calculator and again and again right so i, I don't see calculation errors as silly mistakes i just think, see them as your strategy when doing a question is um, could be better um, and so, for example, you can really prevent calculation errors just by just doing it in the calculator. Just do it every time. Some students say it takes too long, but you'll be surprised. The more you practice with your calculator, the same input will probably take you five seconds at most. So over across the exam, 20 questions, you're spending, you know, a minute to two minutes more, like across the whole stack. But that's going to give you a mark back, a two mark back. That's the difference between the 90 and the 95 with the 95 and the 100. So it's fully worth stuff like that. And a few other ones are misunderstandings. This one is so common. Aspect. It comes back to the idea of like, kind of. It's kind of like putting the error under the rug, the, and putting the the rug being the silly mistake rug. Um, you'll be surprised. A lot of silly mistakes can actually just boil down to not understanding the concepts properly. And the reason why I say that is because if I change the phrasing of the question and reorder the multiple choice, 
it could be it could be testing the same fundamental idea, but students still won't get it right. So then the question is, what was the silly mistake? Well, the idea was they actually just didn't understand the content properly. And they called it a silly mistake because they didn't understand the content properly. So it's like a meta thing. It's like they didn't understand. They didn't understand the content properly. So they called it a silly mistake. But in reality, it's just they didn't understand it properly enough. And they didn't realize if you understood it better, you would have gotten it right. Because if you showed it to someone else that did understand the content, they wouldn't have an issue. So it wasn't a silly mistake. Um, and obviously other things, a like lack of detail, you know, you're not writing enough. Um, but then what is a silly mistake then? Well, I guess you could really argue it comes down to there's very little amount of silly mistakes you can make. But I think silly mistakes just kind of come down to like uh, time pressure and stuff like that. Like general silly mistakes are things where you actually physically don't have time to employ strategies like double checking, triple checking. That's when silly mistakes really come. But if you are finishing exams on time, if you are really ahead, then you shouldn't be making silly mistakes, especially if you have the liberty of saying having 40 minutes left over in a physics exam then there's no way you can make the silly mistake. And I think we can both say the question, the marks we would have lost on our exam weren't silly. Um, they were conceptual for sure or something we couldn't do. And we were 100% confident on that because, you know, we, we kind of realized this by the time of the exam. Same yeah, goes with definitely. special methods. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would even say, I think kind of to try to summarize it, it would be like not every mistake you can fix is necessarily a silly mistake. Like just because you can fix, you could have fixed it, it while doing the exam doesn't mean it was silly. Um, probably means you could like actually work on a strategy that you can employ next time you're likely to make that just so you actually end up fixing it. Um, and then it doesn't have to be a silly mistake anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That makes sense. Like a first time a silly mistake, but then in the future it's a mark mm. back. Yeah. Um, I guess it kind of leads us to, so you can see, it's just like all the flow, I guess, like the tips we're looking at. It wasn't intentional, but it looks like they're flowing well, pretty well together now. But the next one is not analyzing or checking for error patterns or weak areas. So this is a really interesting one because it's not something we kind of look for. Um, is it not something we think about consciously? Yeah, we got the error logbook. Yeah, we got the silly marks. But what you'll notice is this is kind of related to the whole, the whole idea of, say, making silly mistakes say misreading questions stuff like that but you'll realize most of the time i mean, i've kind of hinted to this earlier when he's talking about his distilled list of errors but you will realize a lot of the mistakes you make will actually have some patterns to it it's very unlikely not many students at least i find have very volatile or random errors as in you might make an error here there every exam is completely different Usually when I see that, it's usually the kids scoring very, very high, as in like the 98, 99%, where they lose like one mark on a random thing here, random thing there. That's when I usually see something like that. But if you're scoring like the 80s, 90s, which are excellent marks, but you will likely see patterns or weak areas. So example, if you're losing marks on projectile motion and electrolysis, right, then you know, that's probably a weak spot. It's not you're lose it's not silly mistakes, it's not anything. It comes back to the misunderstanding. There's probably just a weak spot, right? Um, and then example, there's a few things Amitav might look into, like might suggest that you can do after, but a few other things is you can kind of, you will see this as well. If you have an error logbook, especially if it's a good error logbook, you will notice where the weak spots are and that's where you have opportunity to fix it, which is really important. Yeah. Like I remember those distilled, um, like topics at the end of my physics logbook and also even with maths as well, it was, it was basically just, um, those like my air my weakness weak areas basically is what it ended up being so it was like i knew certain types of errors that i was likely to make and those they came from my error logbook like it was just something i i actually remember i put um tally marks on my errors at the very start so i would write down a mistake but every time in the next exam if i made the same mistake instead of writing it in my logbook again i would just go back and add a tally to the same error i'd made before 
Um, and then by the end, I had some errors which I made like I've made like five times. Some I might have only made once and then fixed from the next time on. And those errors that I made like multiple times, that's what ended up being that distilled kind of list, um, which was my like pattern of making mistakes, right? The same kind of error I kept making. Um, and then I actually put um, for physics and maths because you get a bound reference at least for exam two for maths as well. I actually put those at the very start and like the first page of my. Um, mathematical reference or like my bound reference for maths it was just those like it was I think 12 or 13 mistakes that I I'd made like way too many times to ignore um, and then that was something I went over do while doing my exam and like after doing it in the actual exam I went over those 12 or 13 things and kind of ticked off um, to make sure I hadn't repeated them in my actual exam same for physics I'd, I put those errors on my cheat sheet um, just so I have them as a reference and while doing every question, I can kind of look over or at the end when I'm revising, I could kind of look over um, and try to not not repeat those. Obviously, with physics, my personal experience, I kind of ran out of time, so I didn't get to do that. But for maths, I did. So it was like it's definitely something that was useful, I think, um, as a skill that as a um, tip kind of that would could be useful. Um, yeah. Uh, so that, that brings us kind of to uh, the mistake number six. So um, the sixth biggest mistake that we see. Um, well, these aren't in order, but the sixth, another mistake that we see people make um, is continuing to do exams when their marks aren't improving. So this is kind of linked to that grouping thing where you're just doing exams, but this is more, even if you're not grouping exams while marking them, but if you're just getting the same or very similar marks across like five exams, then that's probably a moment um, when a lot of people won't do this, but um, that's probably a moment when you should kind of step back and ask yourself like, okay, there's no there's no real point continuing to do the same, like continuing to do exams, because you're not actually improving um, in terms of your marks. Um, and so it's probably a moment to step back, look at the, the your error logbooks, for example, and look at the mistakes you've been making, look at your, um, you know, like red pen annotations on, on exams, um, and kind of, and see if you're repeating the same mistakes. If you are, then that's, that's kind of, um, that's an indication that you probably shouldn't continue to do more exams, but rather work on those those mistakes and try not to make them again by some sort of like employing some sort of strategy. It might be you have to every time you see a a question from a particular topic, like maybe you're weak or at magnetic fields. So you every time you see a magnetic fields question, you tell yourself to read it at least three times, and you then underline every keyword. Um, and then you go over your calculations at least twice and you put stuff in the calculator at least twice before you actually complete that question. Because that's, for example, an area where you know you've been making a lot of mistakes and repeatedly as well. Um, so it can, it's really good to look at the mistakes and errors and marks you're losing. Um, and if you're not improving across multiple exams, then it's yeah, really important to not just continue to do exams because at that point, you might as well just not do exams. If you've done like example five exams and your marks been like a 76% plus minus 3%, then that's like, you should probably, you shouldn't do a sixth exam before actually fixing or working on um, something because th there's no real, real point um, to doing more exams because yeah, you're not going to improve um, just by ticking off that um, I've done six exams, I've done 10 exams. Um, yeah. I think uh, so. That's really important as well. I think what you what we kind of find is this type of advice kind of more applies to students scoring but below ninety five percent. Obviously, that's going to be the majority naturally. Um, but mm -hmm. this is example like I'm said seventy six percent. There's nothing wrong with the scores, right? But if you're just going to keep scoring seventy six, seventy six, or give or take, then what about the remaining twenty five? That's really important as well. So your goal should be to rem not consistently score seventy five. Obviously, to rem get less than 25% wrong 
Um, but then the question is, what about the big shots, you know, that are listening, that are getting 95% plus? You know, I know some kids getting 98, 99%. Does that, does that mean it doesn't apply to them? I just want to be, well, the answer is technically yes and no at the same time. It's like, yeah, you should keep doing the exams if you're scoring 98%. But um, there's a really easy uh, like confirmation bias you can get into for the exams. And I felt like this happened to me. What I realized after, like after coming out of quite a lot of my exams, actually, is the way I could have scored higher is not by doing more exams, but actually looking at, it kind of goes back to the idea of the weak areas thing again. So I'll give you three examples um, of for each of my things. So example, in four physics, I got 48.4 uh, in year 11. But what I realized is the question that the two marks I lost that were the 50, like the overall 50, were actually just a question I'd done like two months prior in a subject. For those Jomanesh kids, I'm sure you know computational physics. So I did the same question. There's like two speakers facing each other and, you know, there's some interference pantheon between them. I won't get too much into the technicalities, but I've done that question, the exact same thing. Uh, the diagram is the same. The question was basically the same. The working out was the same, but I kind of ignored it. I was just like, man, whatever. It's, you know, it's in a subject. It's in a different subject. You know, it's probably not relevant to the physics you know, exam. And what I realized is if I, you know, just even spent like another two, three minutes, just two, three minutes, that's all I needed. Like two, three minutes equals two study score points for me, basically. Um, so for you, like big shots that are scoring so high, don't get into the habit because we were scoring high as well. No doubt about it. We were acing the practice exams. We were rank one, two and three, whatever it might be for the sacks as well for most of our subjects. Um, so it's not like, you know, we weren't in that position ourselves. But what I realized is the perfection, the last thing, it could be anything. It really could be. It could be the fact that you had a bad day. You just didn't get enough sleep to the fact that I saw a question just two months beforehand, exactly the same. And it happened to appear in the exam. Um, stuff like that can, it's for, especially if you're aiming for the 50, the 48, the 49, small things like that can make a huge difference. So it just kind of comes back to you. Some of you that are scoring really high, don't neglect little things like that. So that's for physics. I can keep going. So example methods, this kind of comes back to the little, di um, the, uh, the list Amitabh was talking about, the common mistakes. I always made the mistake of, is it strictly increasing or decreasing and whether it's a square bracket, a curly bracket. Um, obviously I had this on my air list, but it looks like I clearly didn't spend enough time on it because I looked at my, um, um, exam report and I lost a mark or two on it, which is the difference between my 47 and methods and a 48 or a 49, because it's just one mark from there. So I got something that I knew I sucked at wrong, which is pretty bad considering I knew that well beforehand. It kind of comes back to the same question I got wrong in physics. So if you know there's something you're a little bit dodgy and be a hundred, hundred and ten percent sure you're not going to make that mistake again because I made it in the real exam despite thinking I knew it. And obviously that's that's the difference between a 48 or I forgot how many marks. It could even be a 49, whatever it might be. And comes one last one I just want to talk about for special for me. Special is like I got 43 for special. Um, and the something that I lost major marks on were the things I knew I sucked at, which was scalar and vector resolutes. I had basically like very little clue on how to do them going into the exam, but I assumed they wouldn't pop up which, you know, I was wrong with. Um, and also complex numbers, like the subset complex planes, the subsets, you know, like the weird subset notation. I also sucked at that. And, you know, it happened to be the question on the um, exam as well. So just like that, I lost probably six marks in total just from those two questions alone, which is the difference between like, you know, like a 43 and easily a 46. Um, and then all the other marks I lost were actually a little bit, you know, troll, which, you know, it's a story for another time. Um, it was the incline pulley one. Uh, that was, you know, a big tragedy. Uh, but yeah, so in general, you'll realize that some of the things you do suck at and you know you suck at can appear. And if you're aiming for those really, really high scores, I wouldn't bet on just your past marks. 
Because if you get 99% or 100% on a past exam, what happens if the new exam looks different? Yeah, you got an issue there, right? So don't use it. Don't For, for those of you that are scoring very high, just be really careful as well when you prepare. But that kind of leads us to the next idea. Well, not really. This one's a little bit irrelevant now. But it's using the VCAL report. So a lot of students kind of just blindly copy the solutions from the VCAL report. But what you'll notice is, just like we're kind of providing advice now, just in regards to these things, the assessor's report, assuming how the guy is feeling at the time when he's writing it, um, is he actually writes, like the person that writes the comments actually has some things at the bottom. Like he usually writes comments like, what this is what students are doing, this is what students should do in the future. Um, just to be clear, by the way, the assessor's, the assessor's report is not a rubric. It is not a comprehensive rubric and it is not model solutions, meaning you can kind of use it to help mark your responses, but it doesn't mean it's like a comprehensive thing. But the one thing it is useful for is kind of just seeing what the rest of the state is doing, especially the percentages. Um, it kind of tells you which topics students are weak at. And also there's a lot of good comments at the bottom. You can kind of see like, oh, students were getting this wrong, common responses that were incorrect with this. Um, I actually was, uh, I remember reading the physics assessor report after the exam and I, I, I made a silly mistake where I've talked about this with my students where I contradicted what I wrote and I realized when I read the report, it's clearly not me. A lot of students contradicted what um, what they wrote for that question, the special relativity one. Um, but yeah, so I think that one's pretty straightforward. Just using the VCAR report can be really, really useful. Yeah, I remember the um, just the table that's on most of the reports, um, which gives you like the distribution of um, what percentage of the state's getting certain questions right, certain marks. So like on a difficult six marker, there might be like 2% of the state gets six out of six. So it's like statistics like that um, can give you an idea. They're more just like interesting to read, but the, sometimes, yeah, like as Angad said, the comments that the assessor is writing, the, um, the, just the, the chief assessor that's writing it, he's the one that's leading all the other VCAR assessors when they have their meetings and whatever, that he's the one that's kind of guiding um, the, the mentality of the assessors when they're marking your exams. Um, and so he's kind of the lead who kind of ends up deciding what marks, how the marks are gonna be distributed. So those comments can be quite useful sometimes, um, just those insights that in the comments that the assessor writes, they can give a lot of insight in terms of what VCAR usually expects. And it's even though the chief assessor might change across years, it's the general idea. If you have a look at like the last 20 years of exams, it probably hasn't changed uh, too much. Yeah. So it, they, are, they are quite consistent in that sense. Um, so it can be, um, yeah, a really good resource. Um, and yeah, so these are, yeah, the, they're not, they're not flowing in terms of like, they don't lead on to the next one anymore, but the eighth, um, com most common mistake that we see among students is, um, targeting a certain number of exams. So, um, example, um, I've known people, um, when I was at school and even now, like students, um, saying, okay, I'm going to do a hundred exams and then I'm going to get a 50 and that's just, that's how it works. Um, but that's like, they find out the hard way, but it's, it's better if you know this early on is that um, that's usually most likely not how it's going to work is um, targeting some number of exams isn't how you're going to get the score. Um, just because of, I think a lot of the things we did already talk about is doing um, the, the quantity of exams doesn't really matter. It's the quality of um, not just the, while you're doing the exam, like your focus while you're doing the exam and that kind of thing, but also um, marking it after right so not just doing exams but also um, marking them after and um, figuring out what mistakes you're making and trying to fix them up for the next exam um, achieving a certain number of exams is I think very um, 
yeah, that's not not the best way to approach it because it doesn't give you anything to quantify as in it doesn't give you any way to actually improve it just gives you a number to target in terms of i've done this many exams but that doesn't tell you if you've actually improved or not um while doing those exams but i think obviously of there's there is a flip side to that is you can't you probably can't expect to do like three exams and um do get the best score you can get there is probably a there is a curve as to um how many you should do it does and it's it's hard to answer i feel like for a lot of people like it'll depend a lot on the kind of student you are um if you're someone who for example is struggling with the timed aspect of exams and like the pressure of just some just an exam right so you have to get you have to attempt 120 marks and write 40 pages of an exam in two hours if you're struggling with that kind of thing then you probably do need to like it would benefit you to do more practice exams um because even though you might know the content really well you might not be good at yet just the assessment part of it and so then doing more practice exams like um would be beneficial to you whereas if you're someone who um perhaps is very like used to that or he's like for example i was very used to doing lots of like practice exams so i i didn't necessarily need um a lot of like time to practice but i did still do exams in terms of just getting experience across like lots of exams because sometimes especially the hard questions for example they're very unique every year so you have to kind of get exposed to a lot of exams you can't just expose yourself to like two or three practice exams and um expect that you kind of have an idea of the of, of what future exams would look like um so yeah it's definitely important to do a lot of exams um but it, i think the way to look at it is probably it's more important that the quality of the practice exams you're doing as opposed to just hitting a target hitting a quantity um and yeah yeah Amitha, how many exams did you end up doing for methods for your 50 um i think i probably did around 10 exam ones 10 exam twos so i don't know if that's a lot i don't know if that's too little i feel like a lot of people might think that's too little but um i guess the bit of context is i was also doing special at the time at the same time so i did do a lot more special exams um and so that kind of gave me a bit more confidence while I'm, when i was doing methods um but for example physics i did a lot, a lot more um for i got a 45 in physics and i did probably how many did we do probably 30 30 yeah, give it 30 yeah. 35 something like that yeah. um special as well i probably did a lot more than 10 i probably did 25 each 30 each something like that um i think personally for me around 30 to 40 exams would have probably been the number after which i would have stopped improving as much um like it kind of would have plateaued at that point so i think it was a good number for me personally um but for some people as i said like if you're struggling with that um aspect of like just the exam setting is something that stresses you out and makes you do not as good as you'd like to do then you you might benefit from doing more than that um yeah yeah i think uh yeah i think just to be very clear for everyone listening is if you if you're applying to do say 100 exams or something we're not saying necessarily it's wrong to do 100 exams and hmm. um, we're just saying be sure if you are to do 100 exams you have a very clear expectation of why that makes sense i know i, I can like 100 say a lot of students i know i know example last year we had a really really bright physics student he was doing physics three or four in year 10 he he got 43 raw which is an excellent score um, but he was he was very capable he was capable of getting you know the 48 the 49 the 50 he did 60 physics exams which is quite a lot in terms of considering they're two and a half hours each um, which i thought was a little bit overkill but i do feel like that i think it puts so much pressure and stress on him that doing 
because just to put in perspective, if we assume he did, took what two hours per exam, he did 120 hours of physics exams. That's excluding marking, excluding anything else and whatnot. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on a person. So it's not necessarily that doing more exams is harmful. It also puts a little bit too much stress or pressure. And once again, it kind of comes back to who you are. I knew he used to come and go under quite a lot of stress. Uh, some of you just don't care, right? Some of you like can do 5 billion exams and it won't change you one bit. That's fine. Then 5 billion exams it is, whatever it might be. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's really important you understand your limitations. And if you feel like you're going to stress out if you do too much, then it's probably better you don't. Because um, one thing we'll realize is stress loses more marks than practice gains. Stress can lose up to five to ten percent in one sack, whereas practice can you know, oh exam practice can only give you like one to two percent at a time. So it's better you're less stressed than more. That's kind of so it's a, it's a really complicated problem. So we don't really have a we don't really have a solution to it right now. For example, if you talk to a student, we might be able to come up with something personalized for them. Uh, but the main thing is whatever you do is look for more meaningful goals. For example, for me, or oh, something that might be a little bit more meaningful, a little bit more tangible than saying, oh, I want 20 exams, 30 exams, is for me, I might feel a lot better about myself if my goal is, say, ace five, five exams in a row. Because that, I don't know, it's just a random goal. Obviously, it's, once again, exams don't reflect your real exam performance, like practice exams. But it might just give me like reassurance that if I was to do five exams in a row, there's a pretty high chance I'm going to ace, you know, some of them. Um, or something like that. There's a more likely chance I'm going to ace them compared to just doing, you know, some arbitrary amount of exams and scoring 70% of them. Um, and it's also maybe your other goal might be average 95% on your exams. That's a little bit more tangible and it might be a better measure rather than doing 40 exams. It's better to average 95%. Some kids will get to that straight away, like in a few exams. Some kids will take 50 or 100, like Amitabh was saying. Um but yeah, once again, it's it's whatever works for you. Whatever the main thing is, don't focus on the number of exams. Focus on the quality and the vision on your study, and that might end up being a hundred exams. Or it might end up being like say ten for Amitav. Um, so that kind of leads us to the next thing with the exams is not doing timed exams. So I had a really there's a really good analogy by Zane who got you know the Premier's Award and uh, in special so fifty raw. And, and the analogy he kind of used for doing timed exams was think about an athlete. How does an athlete train for like, you know, the biggest competitions of their lives? Like an athlete's obviously, if they're going to say Usain Bolt, if he's going to run, you know, the 100 meter uh, sprint, he's going to time himself every time. Yeah. He's like, if he just runs to the other end and he doesn't time himself, how does he know he's beating his records or he's going to beat his records? Like, yes, he's making the whole journey or he's running across the whole thing, like the 100 meters. But it's not giving him any feedback on how fast he's doing and whatnot. Obviously, he knows he's going quickly, but that's the thing. That's where that's that's where the misconception kind of comes in. Like you can be going really quickly, and um, you can make it to the end, but you don't really know exactly how much time you actually have left. Like you kind of lose sense of time as well. And all students don't time themselves when doing exam, which is fine. Example: we didn't time ourselves that much because we were very confident that we would finish very early. Some of you would not have to, but if you're realizing you're 5, 10, 15 minutes, or maybe let's say in terms of percentages, uh, that might be say 10%, 15% time left as an of the exam, then you should probably start timing exams. Because example, for us, we were probably leaving 30% of the exam, like we finished within 30, like, you know, 30% left, which is enough leeway that we pro we didn't need to as much focus on timed exams. Um, and you'll know you you'll know if you don't need to time yourself. Um, but f especially if you feel like you're running out of time for sacks, if you've been running out of time for sacks throughout this year, then this is important. You should time yourself. It's kind of like training, right? Um, just chuck a clock on, get through the exam, and then you know that's 
time yourself, log it like in the error log book, and you know, you can keep yourself accountable. And one thing I just want to mention, it's a little bit of a detour, but this kind of relates to the idea of speed, right? Um, so it's not really one of the tips we compiled, but it kind of relates to this is a lot of students get into the habit of um, rushing exams. So I like to think about it in three ways. There's your slow pace. Your slow pace is like, oh, if you're chilling, you're, you're, you're on the couch and doing the exam, that's like your chill pace. Um, there's the rush pace, I think, which is like, you know, you're running out of time, you know, imagine you're, the, the feeling you get when you're in a sack and you have five minutes left and you've got a few pages left. That's the rush pace where you're kind of getting through as much. You just make it to the end. You just make it to the end. I think, no, those two paces are terrible. And the students that do the first couch one, they kind of turn their brain off and they just don't finish. I know a lot of students that kind of go through this. It's, it's usually a lot rarer than the rushing students. Um, but there are a few students that kind of just go way too casual and then they look at the clock and they're like, oh crap, I've only done a quarter of the uh, sack and it, it's half time already. And then they, then they go into rushing phase. And the rushing phase is also really terrible. Some students will rush because the reason I just talked about before, like they run, they feel, they realize they're running out of time. Or some students will just do it from the get-go, from the very beginning. They're like, I want to get to the end as quick as possible. I used to do that actually. That was like my goal. Um, but then when I talked to my teacher, she she essentially introduced the idea that why aren't you going at your comfortable speed like the middle one that you got enough pressure that you're thinking and you're thinking fast but um but just enough that you're not making silly mistakes and you know you're forgetting little plus and minuses and stuff and just focus on improving your comfortable speed like as in making your comfortable speed greater and then i thought about it and i was like that makes sense so i should instead at the when i start practicing i should go at my comfortable speed yes it'll be pretty slow at the start but if, for example, combined with the timing idea, like timing your exams, or just in general, like slowly speeding up one by one, if you take that slow and steady approach, you speak one pace, you're comfortable at it as you're not stressed, but you also are pretty quick as a pace-wise, then you keep pushing yourself just bit by bit by bit by bit, you'll naturally accelerate your comfortable speed to the same speed you're at the rushing phase, or you know, give or take, a little bit less, maybe even a little bit more without having the same feelings, like the same anxiety and the same rushing and the mistakes. So over time, just with practice, you can actually just make yourself naturally faster. Obviously, that comes with practice, time, and just, you know, slowly pushing yourself one by bit by bit. But if you can do that, then you can minimize a lot more mistakes and still finish the exam within time without feeling stressed. And I think that's where we, me and Amitav, were probably both up to in that phase where we were finishing the exams pretty quickly, but I never, ever felt like I was rushing. And that's just, I just feel like that's because we just slowly, gradually increased our speed as we were doing practice. And we got more comfortable. We started thinking about the problems quicker, but we never felt like we were rushing. Like, not not me, at least. No, no, Amitav, I don't think so. You felt that way as well. So that's yeah. one way to kind of, yep. Yeah, kind of, I was going to say, it kind of goes back to that athlete analogy where if an athlete has to increase their, like, I don't know if he has to, if Usain Bolt has to go from a nine point, I don't exactly know the numbers, but if he has to go from a 9.8 to a 9.3, second whatever 100 meters he's not gonna try to do that on the first day and like overexert himself and maybe injure himself he's gonna go 9.8 to like 9.75 um by improving like a tiny thing and then like you know those incremental improvements um like one day at a time and then eventually he's gonna be at a comfortable 9.3 um instead of like a stressful and like injurious 9.3 or something like that um, so yeah, I think that's a really good point with the, yeah. like you want to be comfortable, you want to be at a comfortable pace, because one thing as well is um, in an actual sack, you're always not going to be at your 100%, like it's very difficult to be at your 100% 
in an actual exam. So the more comfortable you can get with the idea of doing a timed exam, um, the more likely you are to be, the more likely you are to be at like a 95% instead of like fully stressing out and being at like 50% of your capabilities. Um, and kind of also, I was going to, I was thinking about that athlete kind of analogy and I thought of an extension of it is um, a lot of, for example, like athletic, um, like athletics as in like runners and those people um, train in like low oxygen environments. I think I remember reading about that. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, that could apply. I was thinking to um, at least a lot of um, high achievers. Like if you're getting, if you're consistently getting higher than 95% on your practice exams, um, then this might apply to you. Or if you if you know you're going really well, um, you could um, extend that idea of doing a timed exam. Because if you're getting a 95%, it's probably safe to assume you're not too stressed about time in general. Um, and so one way you could um, try to extend yourself is um, doing a timed exam, but reducing the time you give yourself. Um, I think this is something if I look back that I could have benefited from. Um, example, in physics, I did run out of time, even though um, like I, I was doing fine and then I eventually ran out of time in the sense that I finished all questions but I didn't I didn't leave myself enough time to revise and go over stuff again um, and that's something if I probably had a more structured approach to doing um, timed exams but giving myself like instead of two and a half hours if I gave myself an hour and 45 minutes um, or two hours or maybe even less like an hour and 30 or something of just less time than two hours and 30 minutes um, that would have given me, if I structured that in my practice, then that would have given me a much better chance of having that, having enough time to like revise in my actual exam. So I feel like that's something that could apply, especially if you if you aren't too are not too stressed about timed exams at the moment. That's something you could do. Um, yeah. 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 No, I think that's really good. I don't want to milk the analogy too much, but extended <laughs> on the athlete one. Um, because I do, I play a lot of music, so this kind of came to mind, and I'm sure you would as well for tabla. But um, especially for music, when you say let's just put like some notation, example, you so those of you that play music, I'm sure you, you'll get what, what I mean. Um, if you're playing like a song at say oh, no, 100 beats per minute, whatever it might be, um, you know, it's then you have to go to 144 beats per minute, 162, whatever it might be. Um, you realize if you jump, if you make that jump. It, it's, it's impossible, right? Like, as in, you're, you're going to make heaps of silly mistakes. You'll get through it, but, you know, you're missing notes, you're missing that, you're missing that, you know. But but you do get to it eventually. And the way you get to it is you slowly increase from 100 to 104 to 108 to 112, 116, 120. And what you what, what this what, what kind of hints to me is not necessarily that this is just a study technique. It just seems to be a very human thing that, like, the way we improve is by incremental changes or it's like compounding. An example, in music, I always found, I always wanted to jump to that faster speed. I always tried because, you know, I was too lazy to spend an extra four hours practicing the song by, you know, doing each speed for like a few times. But what I realized every time I did, it was just a disaster. Like I was getting through it, but I'm missing the notes. It's not good as what I wanted. But then I go back and resort to the, okay, slowly one by one by one by one. And what you realize, and then you can make the jump. You can easily just jump to whatever speed you want at that point with music. Same thing goes here. You, Some of you will want to jump to the fastest speed while practicing. Mm -hmm. This kind of connects everything together. That's why it's important to start exams early and time them is so you can let this process occur, this compound effect.
where you can start jumping. A lot of well, this is this is a big reason why it's bad to leave exams the last minute. A lot of students jump at the very end. They start rushing their exams. They don't have time. They want to get through the exams quickly, and they do that in the real exam. It's a complete mess, littered with silly mistakes. They lose so many marks in exam one. They drop out of the A plus range. They lose, then they just barely cop a forty low forty, or they don't even make it into the forties. Whereas the students that start a little bit early, combined at the time, they are slowly increasing and increasing. You start with casually doing exams on the couch, to doing on your desk, and then slowly chucking your timer in front, and slowly faster and faster. Then you're realizing you're acing it, but now you go to what Amitav suggested. You chuck a timer to limit yourself, then you're getting faster and faster. And by the time it gets to the real exam, you're just like, you know, it's just a normal day. You're, it's just like you're playing the music again at the same beat you've been practicing for the last, like, two months. And rather than the students that haven't bothered growing step by step by up, they just kind of jumped to it. It just falls apart. So I, I hundred percent, this is something that just works really well for any type of student. Um, but yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I completely relate to that. Um, like the the idea that you want to rush, but it's it's best for you that um that you don't rush, like jump past that incremental, um, improvement stage for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of brings us um to the to the last. Um, so num- tip number 10 or mistake number 10 is is a simple one is a straightforward one it's getting distracted um while doing exams so it's 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 like a it's almost a given it should be a given but unfortunately as we've realized is this is something like i definitely did is i did practice exams where i would do like the first 40 minutes and then i'd get distracted i'd go on a break i'd go get a snack from the kitchen and then go on my phone for five minutes and then go back to the exam um, and that, yeah, that's, that's not that, that you realize, I guess, soon after, or, or sometimes much later is that's not a good way to practice. Um, because you're again, just it's a, you're like sacrificing on the quality of your practice exam. Um, and the other thing is you're not actually emulating an actual exam because obviously in the real exam, you don't get to get a five minute phone break or, a um, like a kitchen break. You can bring snacks, I think into exams, but, mm. but that's probably the extent of it. <laughs> like you shouldn't be getting the, yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, yeah, uni exams you get to bring in snacks, maybe yeah. not for school, but but yeah, definitely. I think getting distracted really sacrifices the quality, and um, it's really easy um to get distracted and like to just go on your computer, go on YouTube, go on um like social media. Um, some of the ways I got around it is just um um apps like like Chrome extensions, like um block where you just block certain websites, um and also like put your phone under the pillow behind like on your bed like under the pillow on silent just so you don't like see notifications um turn them off if you want just you know stuff like that um just so you don't lose focus and you don't um yeah like sacrifice on the quality yeah no this one's this one's really important I well, I did the same I think everyone in our generation does this and the sooner you kind of realize the more beneficial it is for your studies and just like your insanity your sanity at that point um, but yeah I think just the I, I block stuff as well I think I went for the whole like the detox one where I example um I just turned everything off while I did the exam so I'd have to be really distracted to turn my computer back on or walk downstairs and grab my phone. So I just turned everything off and I just, just had shut my table a little bit away from my computer and laptop and I just kind of did them. There was nothing else for me to do. Um, and yeah, so it's just important because the reason why is if you start involving your phone in this in the process, when it gets to the real exam, you won't have the ability to concentrate. You'll be surprised. Two and a half hours is a very long time. That's like equivalent to two and a half or three periods at school if you include reading time. And you basically have to concentrate for all three periods straight Remember the whole exam, do the whole exam, read the questions, do the questions and everything in the physics course or whatever exam you're doing, 
especially for English. Oh my God, three hours of English is grueling, <laughs> right? Um, and if you're if you keep touching your phone all the time and you know you're getting distracted, you're basically losing focus and not practicing what it feels like for three hours of continual focus. And when it gets to the exam, you'll be surprised. A lot of students actually can't focus for that long they get distracted and i know students they admit it after they come out of the exam like, oh for five ten minutes i just didn't know what i was doing i just kind of flicked pages around and i just kind of got lost and you know um so yeah this one's kind of important i mean it's it should be a given but just like us you i'm sure we all kind of come across this i'm getting distracted for sure the other um, thing as well um with that is um if if you do it in break if you take breaks um on the real exam, obviously, you don't get breaks, right? And um, the thing you have do have to get used to is writing for that two and a half hours. So, one is focusing, but also the whole time you're writing, right? Um, especially, this is probably more super relevant for English more than anything, because English, you're literally writing. You're not even, there's like barely any reading and understanding the question. You're just writing. Like once you start, you don't really stop writing those three um, like essays. And so for English especially, but even for the other subjects, um, ideally, you do want to have yeah, don't don't get distracted because then you're not you're not gonna have that experience of writing for those three hours. I remember one thing I used to do. Um, I would just tell my parents before I sat down for a practice exam that I'm doing an exam for the next two hours. I um, mean, so that way I've kind of broadcasted that I'm doing an exam, and so I kind of forced myself into doing it. Um, because at the end of two of those two hours, they'd be expecting me to come outside and say like I've finished. Like I didn't actually have to go there, but it was more just setting an expectation for myself. Um, that I have to do an exam in the next two hours, and that means I just have to do it. There's like no options anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. That kind of goes with the idea of being accountable as well. Like I think it's like a I forgot what's called. There's an effect or something where it's like you tell someone else, or you tell a lot of people that you're about to do something, and then it keeps you accountable, and it gets it's more likely you're going to do it if more people know. Uh, I think there's been studies where it's like if you tell someone you're going to do something compared to not telling anyone, you're more the person that tells someone is more likely to do it. So I guess that kind of comes to like another thing where if you're feeling like you are procrastinating a lot, like just straight up tell your mom that I'm going to do an exam. And if your mom comes and sees you're not doing an exam, she'll beat you, right? So it's obviously <laughs> like, um, so it's like, that's one good way to say, stay accountable is just tell the people you're scared of or scared of in the sense that like, you don't want them to know you're distracted. Maybe your parents or um, another way is maybe you might set up a Zoom call with your friends. I know some some of my physics students have tried this. I don't know if it worked, but um, as in people have to commit to it. But you might have your friends set a time every week that you want to do X exam. And all you do is just turn the Zoom call on, turn your webcams on, and maybe just point it down at your paper. It looks like you're writing and whatnot. And that's it. You just kind of do the exam. You set the timer together, and then you can talk about the exam after as well. You'd be surprised how much you can learn from each other. And if you put like two brains together, it usually doubles the speed of how much you can learn. Because rather than you having to think of everything, you know, someone else is thinking of stuff and then you take their ideas and you give them ideas. But yeah, that, that, that's that's something important for getting distracted. Definitely. So, yeah. So that's our 10 common mistakes for students make for when doing practice exams. We planned this for a 10 minute episode. <laughs> and then it's now 55 minutes in. So I guess it's just, just too much to talk about. So it looks like our podcast is probably going to be longer than we expected in the future but we'll try to make shorter episodes as well that hopefully only go for five ten minutes so we might summarize them into snippets mm -hmm. um, but it looks like they're going to be a lot longer than we expected but hopefully some of you made it through to the very end and it actually helped or at least got a new got a new perspective maybe you're you know reading something in the background maybe you're doing work or driving or whatnot so hopefully it kind of helped just want to clarify we don't want to feel like we're preachy or anything we're not like gurus in this thing we just want to share our experiences and what we've learned um so please don't feel like we're 
preaching to you is and this is must what you, you this is what you must do. This is stuff that you a lot of students, a lot of high achievers will tell you as well. Um, and it's just kind of what we've kind of compiled together. It's an easy place for you to find, and you can kind of get our opinions and also like the under like the reason why we believe in these. Because if we don't believe in them or if we don't practice them ourselves, we wouldn't tell you. Obviously, there's some things that we haven't done, but we start to apply now, or we realize how important they were that could have helped our own studies. Um, so the list isn't exhaustive as well. There's probably going to be more stuff that we can add in the future, um, but we'll be sure to address particular topics, especially stuff you guys want. Um, there's a lot of stuff we know. Example, uh, we can say that there's a lot of things we've learned and come across in VC and also just tutoring that the scores don't reflect. The score six study scores, a lot of people got study scores. But we also have a lot of experience from all the different competitions and the people we met. But we also have networks in sense we can bring people on that you might want to hear. So if you want to hear some from someone on a for pharmacy or if you want to hear someone doing biomed or just anything like that, any of the career pathways, we can do that. Right, and we can bring professionals on as well if you really want. So, just we really, really appreciate anyone's feedback. It can be a negative message, message, a positive message. We don't mind as long as it's something we can learn from and something we can improve upon. So, you can obviously message us directly with the contour Instagram. Um, and just a you know a shameless plug at the end is it'd be great if you guys can follow us on our socials, just like Instagram and Facebook, or even our personal ones, um, because we'll likely be updating people there. Um, and also you can kind of keep track of what we're doing in our business. Um, we're trying to have more of a social impact there as well. So we're trying to look at these different avenues like podcasts and maybe even TikTok soon. Um, but just so we can kind of expand our reach because we know we believe in Contour. We know it works for our students as well. So we'd like a lot more of you to get involved. Um, if you actually want to come on the podcast yourself, if you have something interesting to say, if you know someone that should be on the podcast, once again, please send through any of your suggestions and also please share it to your friends as well this episode and i know it's pretty long and your friends are gonna be bro one 60 minutes but um you know maybe they can listen to it in the background or maybe can they can skip to the best part step one but whatever it is please send through any feedback guys we've you know we've enjoyed talking about this and we went a lot longer than we expected but anything else from you Amitav? Nah, that's that's more or less. I think you covered everything. Just yeah. like if you like, like the video, comment, share, subscribe, all that type of thing. I'm just, yeah. Yeah, just your, your, your typical social media YouTube stuff. Yeah, yeah, just like insert, insert that here. Yeah, if you have any like, a, yeah, insert that here. If you have any comments and stuff as well, example, if there's something we said was controversial or also agreeable, yeah, please, please let us know. We'll be happy to talk to you guys and answer any questions. And it's a journey between us and you. And we're going to be keep we're going to keep uploading, hopefully weekly, uh, maybe even more more than once per week. I'm um, leading up to the exam, so hopefully you guys have someone to listen to, someone that understands what you guys are going through, um, someone that can kind of provide some feedback and get you motivated for VCU, continually accountable as well. All right. Thanks again, guys. This is Angud, and this is Amitav, and bye bye. Bye bye. Peace. See ya.